Welcome back to the Rob Skinner Podcast. My goal is to inspire you to live a no regrets life, make this life count, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Today, I'm thrilled to have Will Archer on the program. Will is a missionary and church leader in the Potomac Valley Church right near Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. He's been a missionary to Jamaica. He's married to his wife, Tasha. And Will is really at the center of the conversation dealing with racial issues in America and in the church. And the thing that inspires me about Will is, is he's a powerful church leader and literally has traveled around the world to learn how to be a better church leader. He's got a cutting-edge ministry there in Northern Virginia, and I'm looking forward to finding out more about what he's doing there. But before we get into the program, I'd like to let you know about a mission planting happening in the summer of 2021. We're planting a church in Flagstaff, Arizona, and Pam and I are looking for people interested in leading that team as well as joining that team as members. So if you're interested, you can email me at rob at tucsonchurchofchrist.org. Back to the program. Hey, Will, thanks for joining the program. Yeah, grateful to be here with you. That's so cool about Flagstaff. I know. I'm just so excited about it. It's something that uh, the the Phoenix Church talked to me about and asked me if I could kind of spearhead getting a church um, going again. There's actually a house, small house church there of about 12, and the, the church has been there for probably 20 years, but it's it's languished, and it's gone up wow. to close to 50, and it yet... Um, has diminished. And so trying to get a second wave or a surge mission planting to get it over 50 and then a hundred. And it's such a beautiful area. It's, it's a couple hours away from the grand Canyon, close to Sedona. It doesn't, wow. doesn't look like Arizona as you'd imagine. It's beautiful trees, gorgeous, gorgeous country, more like Colorado than, than the desert of, of Arizona. But, wow. Well, Will, thanks again for joining me on the program. And I want to start off by asking how did you become a Christian? Yeah, so, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to be with you here. Um, uh, my story of becoming a Christian, like all of our stories, you know, is, is deeply personal. Um, and, um, and, you know, just really testifies just to the greatness of God. Um, my dad was a Seventh-day Adventist minister that went to graduate school at Northwestern. And while he was there, he converted to Islam. And so I... Um, my family is very invested in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and in, in Christian communities in Jamaica, uh, but I grew up uh, Sunni Muslim. Um, I went with my dad when I was eight to Mecca and to Medina, um, and while I was there, I was just blown away by the, the, the thousands of worshipers who were circumnavigating the Kaaba, and it began a lot of questions for, my, for me as a young boy about faith. Um, when I was 12 years old, I read the Bible for the first time and I was blown away by Jesus. Mm. And I knew that I wanted to follow Jesus that I saw in the Bible, but I really had a hard time finding that Jesus really, his faith lived out in churches. And so I spent the next six years going to lots of different churches, asking lots of questions. Um, and then when I was 18 years old, I, um, I, had a, I took a door-to-door sales job and I was knocking on doors in the Bronx, New York. Where I was there for college. And, um, and as I knocked on a door, they were having a Bible talk. And I literally walked into a Bible talk. And, uh, <laughs> just, just totally God. 
and um, and it was a married Bible talk. You know, really great people, good food, great people, and um, and I studied the Bible and I stopped. And then later that summer, that was in the spring. Later that summer, I studied the Bible and I got baptized in New York, and August twenty second, nineteen ninety three. Oh, that's an amazing story. You're like the the merchant looking for fine pearls, or or actually the one just stumbling across across it, not not really looking for it. Mm-hmm. That's that's amazing. So you grew up in a background where okay, your dad was Seventh Day Adventist, then converted to to Islam, mm-hmm. but he allowed you to to go visit other Christian churches. Actually, my father passed away from prostate cancer when when I was nine, um, but had he lived he absolutely would have done that i mean Mm. he taught me from a very young age that i should always have my own opinions question things search things out that was very much a a big part of his um you know his commitment to me was that i needed to have my own my own views on things so i don't doubt that he would have encouraged me to explore um wherever i wanted to explore but honestly my fidelity to my father might have been the thing that may have held me back from doing that um, my, my father's by far the, 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 my biggest hero and kind of the mo- the greatest influence in my life, um, um, other than Christ. And, um, and so I, I probably would not have done that had my father not passed away. But mm-hmm. after my dad died, I remained faithful to my Muslim faith. I prayed five times a day as I had done when he was alive. Um, but what turned, um, my thinking honestly wasn't church it was just the scriptures it was it was and it was jesus Mm. Um, i've just been completely blown away just by how he is and how what he calls us to be and that's kind of been my pursuit um since i was 12. wow now prior to the recording i talked a little we talked a little bit about your background your dad's from jamaica can you share a little bit about your background and your family yeah so my my when my dad um came came to the US, he met my mom. My mom um, is second generation um, um, uh, American from Poland. So my great grandfather fought in World War I, my grandfather in World War II. And, um, and my, mom, my mom's family um, settled in the Chicago area. Um, so I have a, a, whole, a whole lot of Polish siblings and I know a lot of po- Polish jokes. <laughs> Not great. And, um, and lots of love for Polish food. And, uh, but, and then my dad, uh, he's uh, Afro-Caribbean. We also have some, some Indian on my grandmother's side. Um, and, um, and so my, I'm the only child of my, that my parents had. Unfortunately, their, their marriage only lasted seven years. Um, and then they got divorced. My mom remarried. And, um, and I have um, two uh, younger siblings uh, who are, are both mixed and then two other younger siblings who are, are both white. So our family is, um, you know, we're black, we're white, we're mixed, we're all of that. That's and so, amazing. So, and, you know, so, you know, I, I identify with Eastern Europeans and with Europeans, I identify with Africans and Afro-Caribbeans, I identify with my Indian heritage as well, not American Indian, but right. Eastern Indian. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so yeah, so, so, but, but I'm, you know, I'm a disciple of Jesus who, who sees everyone as my family. That's amazing. Literally that's my family. <laughs> it must be amazing when you get together with your, your family for, for get togethers and uh, maybe friends or people that don't know you too well, trying to 
piece you all together and wonder how you're connected. Oh yeah, it was so funny. You know, when I, I first came here to Potomac Valley, uh, a couple weeks in, my brother came to visit church, and uh, and it was you know I'd, I'd shared about my family, but you know my brother and I, we look a lot alike. Only if you can picture me blonde um, and white, because you know? <laughs> my mom's genes are really strong, and so people just kept having double takes, like. No, no, that's not right. And it is, you know. So, so I do, I do genuinely know that race is a construct because mm. it's just, it's just a construct. Yeah. Wow, that's really fascinating. Now, tell, can you tell me about your journey? So, you became a Christian in New York City. Mm-hmm. I mean, total melting pot. People from all over the place. Mm-hmm. How'd you get to Potomac Valley? Where have you been? Tell me just briefly about your your ministry career up until now. Sure. So, I got converted in '93. Um, and uh, had the, the opportunity to intern with the New York church in 94, which didn't, not, didn't go well. Um, I, I didn't do very well in, the, in that internship. Um, and, uh, but I was really grateful for the opportunity. And, um, and then I lived in New York, worked, you know, like many, many brothers and sisters do, served in lots of ministries, mostly with the teens and with the singles and with campus. Um, and then I moved to uh, Atlanta because uh, the guy that studied the Bible with me, Frank Davis, uh, he had moved to Atlanta to lead one of the, the regions there. And so I moved to Atlanta uh, just to learn from him. And I moved there in 96, December of 96. And, uh, and then in um, January 1st, 1998, about a year or so later, I had the opportunity to go into the ministry, both Pasha and I as singles. Um, we served there in, in the ministry, leading different ministries in the Atlanta church uh, until... Um, about December, November, December of 2004. And, uh, and then we moved to Macon to lead the church there. Um, we were there in Macon for about two years. And then we moved to Philly to lead the teens in Philly. Um, and then we were there for about three years. And then we moved from Philly to the Bahamas. And we led the church there for four years. And, um, and then moved back after we raised up local leaders. And, um, and we moved back to the U.S. and led the campus ministry at UGA and that's where our paths kind of connected that's right when he was at UGA and so I uh, led the campus ministry there for about a year and a half and um, and then uh, just just a uh, little under seven years ago we moved up here to Virginia to lead the Potomac Valley Church so we've been in lots of different places seven churches in wow. 27 years so New York City Atlanta Macon mm-hmm. then to, to Jamaica did I miss that? The Bahamas, actually. Oh, the Bahamas. So, sorry. Yeah. So my family is Jamaican, okay. but we left the church in the Bahamas. Okay. Um, and we, yeah, but but Jamaica's home for me. So, mm-hmm. so you can't say Jamaica enough. <laughs> so the Bahamas, then yeah. back to directly to Athens, mm-hmm. and then you've been in Potomac Valley. What four, five, six years? Six years now. So that we're going into the the seventh year of being here. Okay. So we, interestingly enough, we moved here in August. Okay. Um, now there's another person from New York City who was, I talked to, who was converted or at least was around during the early '90s. Name's Angel Martinez. Do you know mm-hmm. Angel? Very well. Yeah. Okay. Angel's a great friend. So did you guys know each other back in New York City back in those early days? I I knew about Angel going to um, DR in Puerto Rico. Uh, back then so I, he was just he was like a, a great hero that I just heard about I see um, 
back when I was in New York, but we got to be really good friends um, while I was in Atlanta and then beyond that. So we've been friends for a long time. And then when we were in the Bahamas, we we're part of a, a discipleship group together. And, um, and you know, they, they just came and spent, spent uh, but maybe about a year now, they, they came with their son and um, were able to spend the night at our house. We love them. They are yeah. Angel and Lutz are amazing, amazing people and incredible church builders. Amazing, amazing, Jeff. So, so inspiring to talk to them and get to know them. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, um, you've been there for six years. Can you can you just give me a rundown? Give me the, the nuts and bolts. What kind of growth have you seen in the church in the Potomac Valley? Because I've heard nothing but good things. Uh, why, why don't we just start right there? What kind of progress have you seen in terms of, of growth in the church? Yeah, so, you know, Potomac Valley was a, a region of the Northern Virginia church until 13 years ago when um, Potomac Valley became a, a, a cooperative congregation. Um, and for the first seven years, I mean, incredible hard work and energy was put into building the group. Uh, but there was a, a lot of hurt from the past uh, with, you know, this is a, a transient place. So there are lots of people from lots of different places, lots of hurt from the past. Uh, in our family of churches, um, and then also a lot of racial and political tension that was present in the church. The, the church, as, as I mentioned, got started in 2007. The, the election in 2008 really hit some, some pretty major fault lines within the congregation, and there were some cliques and some hurt feelings and mistrust that was formed from that time. Um, as a result, the, the group in the first seven years, it grew and then it shrank. Um, and in, in, in effect, we only grew by three people. So we went from 132 to 135 in, in seven years and a lot of mistrust. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so when we came in, our, our approach was what we had learned from, from a number of different engagements in the ministry and, and from talking with different leaders and just from praying and, and, and study was just to listen. So we spent the first four months just listening. Get, we went to every family group, met with everyone, talked it through. Uh, the next eight months, we did deep teaching. And then a full year into being here, we devote ourselves to fasting um, for, the, for the next four months. Um, a day in September, three days in October, seven days that November, congregational fasting. And then 21 days that January. And uh, we asked Ed Anton to come in and call us to repentance and teach us about repentance. And we took a full month to really look at what, what does repentance look like? Um, from that point forward, God has just done miracles. Oh. As we've made, uh, set our hearts on really repenting and mending our relationships and forgiving and taking responsibility for the hurt that we've done to each other or that we've perceived that others you know, uh, may, have, may have done to, it, to us. Um, it's, we're, you know, we're just a group of messed up people. And we state that all the time. Um, th this, that group that was 135 is now uh, 250 disciples, wow. which is just God. That's awesome. Um, and, um, and what's even more inspiring is the, the reach in the community is just grown tenfold. And, um, and when you add in our children and the people that regularly attend our services um, or really are connected with us. We're a group of about 500 um, in terms of just kind of our community reach. Uh, but that was born out of uh, truly a commitment to repentance and just the grace of God, because 
there wasn't any more um, effort that was put forward in the past six years as had been put forward in the prior seven. Mm. The, the ministers, the, the leaders, the same amount of energy, but it really is a testament to what happens when we repent. Mm. And when we, when we together, we decide we're going to do this um, as opposed to just a few people doing all the work. Right. You know, so, so that's, it's, it's been God and, wow. and just blow complete, complete, complete blow away. That's amazing. That's, that's inspiring, especially when a church has been struggling for a long time or plateaued out to see it growing again is uh, difficult at the minimum, but in lots, lots of situations, it's just so overwhelmingly challenging that people kind of give up, just yeah. never happens. So congratulations to you for, for seeing that grow. And I, I know you give the glory to God um, through repentance, but can you, can you share a little bit about the demographics of the church you lead? I know that the, the church in DC used to be part of the church that uh, Russ Yule founded way back Way back in the day, in the, uh, mm-hmm. probably '93, I'm gonna guess when he first started it. But then mm-hmm. it, it broke up into different regions. You've got different, you know, different churches all over the D.C. and and Maryland area, Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. What's your racial demographic in your church? Life stage? I mean, roughly campus, singles, marrieds. How are you, how are you composed? Yeah, that's a great great question. So here's another interesting thing. I think there there is a a perception. That's often not stated, but definitely is is felt that you know that the the leader of the congregation, whatever kind of racial background or you know kind of elk that they are, that that's what gets produced in the church. Right. Um, and we really had a commitment that we wanted to ensure that in all that we're doing, that we weren't using human a humanistic lens in terms of how we think about church growth and right. And, what we do. Um, and so here's what's interesting. The, the, the group that's probably grown the most in our congregation has been the number of um, white members. So we've actually, we've probably, we've probably grown more in, in the number of white members than any other group um, in, in any other demographic group. Uh, that being said, we're probably sitting somewhere around um, maybe about uh, 30 uh, to 40 percent um, African American, uh, maybe about um, about thirty percent, maybe forty percent white, and uh, and then we have uh, an amazing contingent of Latinos, of Indians, um, you know, um, mostly uh, West Indian Indians, um, and um, and Asians, a growing group of, of of Asians from a number of different places, um, but mostly from Filipinos and, and Vietnamese. Um, and so uh, we're we're completely a um, diverse group with a diverse leadership group as well. Um, we have um, one elder who's white, one elder who's black. Um, our, our our ministry staff is is very diverse as well. Um, but also the, the 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 family group leaders that we have are are, are a very diverse group, um, and it's reflective of our community. I think. I will say this, and you know this from living in lots of places and working with lots of groups, I, I think it's important that churches reflect the communities that they live in. So if right. you live in a community that's predominantly white, it would make sense that your church would be predominantly white mm-hmm. uh, or predominantly black or predominantly Latino. Uh, but our area, like where I live, we live in the um, second largest jurisdiction in Virginia. It's the first majority minority community 
it is a very diverse community. Um, and so our, our congregation reflects our community. Um, and I think that's also what uh, God's used to really make it very welcoming to um, lots of different types of people is, is our commitment to um, being diverse um, and our embrace of, you know, definitely racial diversity, but also economic diversity, um, you know, uh, and, and also political diversity. So we're very mm-hmm. politically diverse which is really uh, important. <laughs> now, that, area. Now, now, you're and, talking, now you're talking miracles, Will. Yeah, <laughs> bro, I'm, I'm, it, is, it is miraculous <laughs> to see it. And, and it creates lots of tension points Boy. Um, and lots of strong opinions. But I've been really proud of, of the Christians. They really have embraced um, being ambassadors. Uh, and we, we have a number of good friends of mine who are both Democratic and Republican politicians that are active parts of our family groups um, and interact in a very healthy way with each other. They, they differ a lot, but they, but they actually um, treat each other with a lot of respect. Okay. So you're in a very racially diverse area, which is awesome. And what about life stage campus, singles, marrieds? Like how, how's that yeah. broken down? Oh yeah, absolutely. Great question. Sorry. I, I meant to ask that. So um. So I would say, you know, our, our group has really changed a lot over the, the course of the past six years. When we got here, it was primarily, um, you know, marrieds um, in their 40s. Mm-hmm. Um, that was primarily that this core of our church. Um, you know, we're 20 minutes, 20 miles, if you will, from Washington, D.C. So a lot of this, we're really, we're, we're basically like D.C. suburbs, if you will, right. in, in Northern Virginia. Um, now the group has really um, changed a lot. We have a growing group of young professionals. We have a very small but vibrant campus ministry. Um, you know, only about you know eight or eight or ten students there. Uh, but the majority of our group are young uh, professionals. Um, you know, our group of you know forty and fifty year old marrieds. Uh, we're we're holding it down, and uh, we've got a growing group of seniors. Uh, we call them our cornerstones. Um, and then, you know, with all these 30 to 40 year old marrieds, we have lots of little kids now and lots of teens and preteens. But the group that's the smallest is our campus. Uh, we only have one small campus that's in our area, um, U- the University of Mary Washington, and then a community college, Northern Virginia Community College. So our uh, ministry strategy is very different than a lot of the churches in our families of churches that are centered around campus ministry. Um, our ministry strategy really has a lot to do with community engagement and involvement and, um, and also just kind of, uh, you know, care for our professionals. Okay. That's where I want to jump off. Cause I knew that just based on the geography that your area is like a bedroom community for, for the DC area. So I'm, I'm sure that a lot of the married couples are driving into the DC area for, for work and then coming back at night. So that, that makes sense. And I also heard that your church didn't have a, a real large campus nearby, but you've really focused a lot on the singles ministry. And yeah. um, that's what I'm very interested in as a, as a church leader. Our, our singles ministry has, has definitely gone through the struggles. We had relatively stronger campus ministry, but the singles ministry, a lot of times people move out, they go on to larger cities, they go to Phoenix or California. What have you done to to reach singles and reach Generation Z? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'd say, um, you know, we're in the middle of it. 
And so our singles can tell you we've made tons of mistakes and we're, we're not getting it right on so many fronts. So we're working on it, but we've, we're, we're constantly keeping an open door to have lots of conversations. The things that, that I think God has definitely done uh, to really move in a great way that I think has really helped us with our singles is one is we really decided to invest in them and, and give them a high profile and give them responsibility. So we invested in, um, you know, singles ministry activities, uh, you know, singles events, singles leaders. Uh, so investment in singles has been big. The other thing is, um, you know, there's a shift that's happening that I know you're very uh, acutely aware of. You know, we're, we're in the 41 year uh, marker in our family of churches. And so you have so many of these singles are, are, were kids that grew up in our church. And so there's a very different culture if you've grown up in our church and there was a clear plan for like children's ministry and teen ministry and campus ministry. Singles is kind of like this big drop off. Right. And, um, you know, great work has been done by the single service team to do like big events. But in terms of like a real strategic plan for them, there really hasn't been in most churches. So that's where we saw a, an opportunity. We're like, all right, we don't have a big campus. Let's really invest in um, doing what we do well. Like we we can bring people over and have food and we can uh, offer hospitality. We can help young professionals with their, you know, professional development and, 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 and with their life stage and help them to acclimate. Because a lot of them, particularly the kids that have grown up in our churches, you know, they've had challenges in campus, mm. but there is nothing like when you start your first job and after, you know, five days of work, everybody's going to happy hour and there is, you know, a whole lot of darkness that you can get pulled into. Right. Your, your boss is using profanity to describe things, you know, and that you need to do, mm -hmm. you know? And, and so how do you make sense of that? If you've grown up in our kind of family of churches, um, all of those things are skills that uh, other professionals can pass on. And so our group that was in our forties, we said, we've got to really invest in loving these young people. Once you create a space where people are cared for, honestly, things grow. It's an interesting thing. You know, uh, not all growth is healthy, but healthy bodies grow. So if people know, hey, you love me, you care about me, you're going to help me figure out how to make sense of how to function um, in life, uh, people are drawn to that. And so there's, there's no logic to coming to Potomac Valley. I mean, it's, it is a bedroom community. It, I think it's beautiful. I think it's amazing, but it doesn't have any of the draws of so many places. There's no beach. There's no mountains. It, there's just a lot of roads, you know, and houses. Um, so there's there's nothing we've got. But love, we have in abundance. And we have love and homes and food. That's and awesome. So, so I think that's that's been our strategy, just loving people. Well, that that's super encouraging because, you know, when I hear about that, I go, okay, I, I could do that. You know, yeah. I, I could do that right here in Tucson and encourage it. And just makes me think, you know, just uh, family oriented, food oriented events, teaching on just how to make it in the professional world. That's, that's very helpful. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that really has inspired me, Will, about you is you've got a strong connection with the churches in Indonesia with mm -hmm. Harlem and Vanya, uh, Salim and... I've seen you over there before at different conferences. And I know you've gone over there with your whole staff. Um, how have you, I mean, that's literally on the, 
opsin in the world. I mean, it's like we're talking around, can't get much farther away than Indonesia. How have you imported ministry ideas from that that country into your own church? And and tell me a little bit about the development of how you even got connected there. Yeah. So you know, I'm, you know, with with um, the Salims and with the the churches in Indonesia and Southeast Asia, about twelve years ago, you know, we were in Philly working with the teens, and we got asked. I got asked to um, to go lead a Hope Youth Corps because Tasha just had our our youngest journey and. I went over there and I saw something I just had not seen before. I mean, just the level of integration that the Indonesian churches and now the Southeast Asian churches have in terms of engaging in the community, really raising up leaders at an exponential rate, but doing it without cranking, mm-hmm. just building community, loving people, you know, making it relational and not transactional. I was just blown away by what I saw. And, um, and I, I came back home and I said, Tasha, we have to learn from these people. Like they're doing something no one else is doing. And it's not supposed to grow there. Like, you know, I mean, it, it is the country with the largest Muslim population. Why is this Christian church doing so well in soil that we might think might be too difficult for it to happen? Um, and so since, you know, 2008, I've been going there um, on a steady basis since we've been here in Potomac Valley. That was actually one of the things we talked about when we were offered the position. We said, are you guys willing to make a commitment that we'll go to Indonesia every year for 10 years? Because we have to learn. Like, we don't know how to do it. You don't know how to do it. Let's go find out from people that do. Mm. And so, and the board was like, if you can raise the money, sure. Mm. And, um, and I was like, okay, we'll do it. And, um, and since then, we've had um, sometimes six. We've had as many as 20 people that have gone over in a year. Um, and, um, you know, some of them are ministry staff, some of them are, are core leaders, some of them are just in, interested Christians. And I think what's helped us to make the connection is that we uh, have just communicated very honestly to the church that nobody knows how to do this in the 21st century. We know the principles that Jesus has given us, but, and, and those are immovable. Mm. The truths are immovable, but we have to be flexible as it relates to methods. So let's learn. And it was a very difficult thing for us to learn, honestly, as Americans, because, you know, we're, we're, we are the ones that we go and mm-hmm. we teach. Right. And honestly, and you know this from traveling around the world, people are used to Americans or Westerners being the teachers. Right. But we said, no, 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 we're not the teachers. We, I mean, we'll teach a class if you want us to, but we're not the teachers we're going to be students Um, because my, and this is just my own personal opinion. When I look at global demographics that are being projected out, I think America very well could look a lot more like Indonesia than less like Indonesia 10, 20, and 30 years from now. So as a, as an evangelist, I'm thinking, how do I evangelize the world of 30 years from now? I have to start today and figure out, okay, what does it mean to really reach people that do not believe in Christian values? You know, how do I reach people that are agnostic or atheist or, or Muslim or, or you name the religion? How do I reach people that may be antagonistic towards us? How, how can I connect with them? And with the Indonesians, I think the thing that we've got over and over again is you build deep relationships 
and you actually show people who Jesus is by what you do. So we made a commitment that would change the way we did ministry. Like we were very invested in serving the community. Uh, I have deep relationships with local, um, you know, human service organizations, uh, you know, local politicians. We're, we, we know each other. We eat together. I get mm -hmm. to know them. Mm -hmm. um, and because, and in everything I'm doing, I want them to see Jesus. I have no problem. I always say Jesus, but I want to make sure they're seeing Jesus. Right. And it's been crazy to see how they've responded. Um, but the Indo we learned all that from the Indonesians. I mean, they, they, they do stuff. And you know this, Rob. It, it's mind-boggling. You're like, yeah. how is this guy, how is this lady a Christian? And it's just deep relationships. Long, long time or short, Agrippa can be persuaded. Yeah. You know, you just got to be willing to invest for the long game. Okay, well, let's let's just jump off right there because I think there's quite a bit to talk about. I mean, one thing, you know, it, it, it's, it's okay, well, before we get into that, let me just ask you this. What specifically, can you point to one thing where you go, this is something we've adopted from Indonesia and this is what we're doing right now in the ministry that's like a, a direct adaptation or modification of something we learned in Indonesia? Absolutely. One specific thing is community engagement. So we, we made a decision that we would um, do this thing called the Great Banquet, um, uh, where we barbecue uh, a thousand pounds of meat and we give out clothing and food um, to the to the, to families in, in um, Title I schools and to anyone that wants it. The, here's the direct connect between that and Indonesia. What we realize is you can have events that are charity-based events that are transactional. So you do them so that they will drum up the numbers of people that visit, the numbers of Bible studies. But what we learned is you shouldn't do that. Just make it relational. Do something that you get nothing out of, that you only give, and tell the Christians just to do that. It is the most amazing thing. People are able, because people are smart. They can't always articulate things but people are really smart. They can, they, can, they can sense when what you're doing is transactional or when what you're doing is relational. And I cannot point to any growth that's directly come through years of doing that kind of work. But what I can tell you is that over the past year in particular, we've had a number of prominent people in the community that have called me and Tasha and said, I want to go to a church that I know really cares about people. Can I can I join Potomac Valley Church and start attending? I'm not ready to study the Bible, mm. but I just want to come be with, at church with you. So those are the people that I met in Indonesia 12 years ago that I've had relationships with. That is Kiki. That is, mm -hmm. you know, that is, you know, um, so many guys I could name um, and ladies I could name. Those people are won over. Prominent people are won over by the body of what you do. Right. And they study you for a long time. Right. And we're starting to see the beginnings of those people that are reaching out. So I think that's the, that's what the Indonesians taught us is make it relational, love people, right. and then do things that you get nothing from. Right. And we're like, okay. Okay. So as we talk a little bit about Indonesia, okay. I, I find this is what's so interesting is that you're right. Like as an American, I go, I'm a missionary. I'm a goer. 
I'm mm-hmm. a, I'm a giver, I'm a teacher. Mm-hmm. And, and yet what I see in you is you've been humble enough to actually go out to the mission field, to one of the, the brightest spots in our kingdom today, a, a place where churches and disciples are multiplying and amazing things are happening. People of influence are being converted in great numbers. It's, it's, it is very miraculous to see it happening. And yet, you know, part of me is like in my pride as an American, I go, hey, you know, that's a third world country. You know, that's a, you know, that's, that's a mission location, a target, not, not really a place to learn from. And how, how did you just kind of develop the humility to go, okay, we're going to reverse this process and actually learn from these people? Yeah, you know, there, there are a lot of things to that. And we can have a much longer conversation right. if you'd like. I'll tell you a couple of things. So a part of it is born out of my own experience. So when my dad was in at, uh, in university and he, he, he met a number of friends that were Muslim, um, his passion for his life was education. And uh, there was a commitment that his friends from college had to help him to be successful um, with educating Jamaicans. And, uh, and I saw growing up, you know, these Saudi uh, royal royals that would come to our school and would invest hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. And they've been doing it all over the world and, um, and for a long time. And, uh, and, and honestly, that, that picture helped me to understand that there is an intentionality um, that the Muslim world has about spreading the message. Mm. When you look at you know, corporations here in the U.S. I mean, there's an intentionality that these corporations have to spread their message. There's an intentionality that the Chinese government or the Russian government or whatever government has about spreading their message. Um, and the truth is there are a lot more people, there are a lot of folks that are much more efficient and effective at spreading the message than we have been as Christians. And so when I saw the working model in Indonesia, I said, this is where people are, they're doing something here, mm. but also the world I live in is changing. It's, and it's changing radically. So I've got to figure out how to change with it mm. and learn from whoever's doing it. Mm. Um, you know, 40, 40 years ago, I would have gone to Boston and I, right. that's no aspersions on Boston Right. today. I'm just saying 40 years ago, I would have gone to Boston. Right. Today I'll go to Jakarta. Right. Ten years from now, I, I, I might be going to Estonia. Like, you know, like, I, mean, I have no idea. It, right. it, 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 it is it is neutral where the place is. Mm-hmm. Where I think as Christians and as Christian leaders, we have to make a shift. Is recognizing that the Spirit of God works, um, and we have to we have to follow the Spirit mm-hmm. and and not kind of hold on to our own. Um, kind of entrenched viewpoints. And you are right. It is very, very difficult for us as Americans to do this. And mm-hmm. it honestly has been very difficult for our church to embrace the idea that we're learning from Asians. Right. You know, and there, there's so many folks that have, have felt like, oh, well, it works there, but it doesn't work here. And that's a part of what has me so excited about what we're seeing now is we're actually seeing really the first signs of leaves coming up you know out of the ground from from what we've 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 learned there and there were so many times rob 
I would be on these long flights thinking, what am I doing? This is ridiculous. Like, <laughs> I, am, like, you know, I don't speak Bahasa. Like, I don't have any connection. Like, why am I here? But I would get there and I was like, okay, because I got to learn. I got, I got to learn from Mr. Mm. Ludiman how to serve, you know, with no end in mind. Mm. You know, I've got to learn from Kiki how to think about reaching professionals. You know, I've, I've got to learn, you know, um, from, you know, from a number of folks. I'm nice. trying to be careful not to name people for different reasons. Sure, sure. Um, but, uh, but, you know, I've got to, I've got to learn, learn from these folks. And we're starting to see it. And it, it is crazy to me, to be honest. Um, you know, we got a phone call from a good friend of ours who's a Democratic elected official. Um, that said, hey, I really want to be a part of the Potomac Valley Church. Mm-hmm. And then this week, we got another phone call from a Republican official that says, I really, and I'm like, hey, these people <laughs> don't belong together. They That's fight right. each other. That's right. But, they, but they're like, this is neutral ground mm-hmm. where I can come and I can actually just go to church. Right. And um, and again, we don't have it figured out. Please, I'm not saying that no. we're we're doing anything other than a desperate commitment to um, following the spirit. But, but I will say, I think the choices that I've made are not divorced from a connection to my own experience. Because mm-hmm. I am I, I, paying attention at least to the fact that there are non-Christian in, um, organizations that are deeply committed to influencing the direction of the world. Um, and I think it's important for Christians to be engaged and to recognize, and I believe that the message of Jesus is 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 the only message that unites all people. Right. Um, and so, how do we get that out? You know, and how do we represent that in a way that is credible and sustainable? And so, that's really what drew me there. What inspires me about it? It reminds me of First Corinthians nine when Paul talks about being all things to all men and and running to win, not just running the race, but running to win. And the thing that I respect about what, what you've done there is flexibility, adaptability, plastic thinking, being able to be moldable into your forties, just deciding, Hey, I'm going to learn from anybody in order to advance the gospel. And I love that. I mean, that inspires me. That gets my blood pumping. I just go, yes, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons why I want to start this podcast is, I want to find out who's growing and I want to learn from those people. I mean, first and foremost, I just want to learn for myself for the benefit of our church here and the churches I lead. But I love what you're doing there, Will. It's it's, it's so inspiring and and very unique. I don't know of any other church that has that kind of commitment to learning uh, from a place that's so difficult and expensive to get to. Yeah. But let's, do you mind if we just shift, shift the conversation? Absolutely, okay. yeah. You've been outspoken on the racial tension in the U.S., and we're still going through it. I mean, it hasn't passed over. We're, there's riots throughout the country. Um, every few days there's you know something uh, having to do with police and, and just all sorts of stuff. Can you summarize your views? I know this is a big, big ask. Can you summarize your views on what's going on? Yeah, I, I, I mean, thank you for asking that question. I think it's a, a very relevant one. And it's connected to what we've been talking about. Um, you know, I, I do believe that the message of Jesus is the solution um, and that Jesus' message is for all people. Um, we have um, a, a history that is very painful. Um, 
and, and real. And I think it's important to be real about that history. Um, and we do have issues with violence and with police brutality. And, um, and you know, I, I am good friends with the, the former chief of police here and with the um, acting chief of police um, who's um, in, in his stead right now. And we have a number of police officers that are in the church and folks in law enforcement 60% of our congregation are active retired military. Wow. So these are, these are real, real issues for us here. Um, and, um, and I, I would say in terms of like summary, I, I think we have deep brokenness. Um, there, there is racism, prejudice, bias um, that are present in the world. And they're also present in the church because people are present in the church, you know, and, in all seven churches that I've served over 27 years, I've, I've seen prejudice, bias, racism, and I've confronted it where I've seen it. Um, and I've talked about it and I've sought to address it. But these, this is a, it's a, it's, it's, it's a product of sin. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's important that as Christians that we are honest about the fact that we're sinful, you know, we're honest about the fact that at best we're saved sinners or where sinners being saved, you know, I mean, so that's, that's where we are. So I thought it was important for us as a church to talk about it. It, it also was a point of um, division for us, particularly in 2008 for Potomac Valley. And so, you know, from a strategic standpoint, we decided both myself and the elders that we would engage the issue directly because, you know, we believe that a, a you know, the best defense is a strong offense. Okay, so, so like, you've, you've mentioned that twice now, 2008, the election of, of President Obama to his first term. How, mm -hmm. how did that, can you just quickly summarize, like, why did that cause a division in the church? You know, because the, there were some Christians that really believed that voting for President Obama was a violation of faith and, and was just morally repugnant and wrong. And there were other Christians who felt like, voting for President Obama was an affirmation of their faith and was, was you know, parties, but I think they're no different than... Okay, I lost you there. Uh, there's about a 10-second gap there. You, okay. Some of the Christians felt that it was an affirmation of their faith. Yeah, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, some of the Christians felt like it was an affirmation of their faith. Um, uh, and, and, and that it was the right thing to do, to, to vote for President Obama. So there, we, we had Christians on both sides of the issue. Um, the, the Christians were, that were in opposition to voting for President Obama did not necessarily understand the racial overtones or undertones of what they were communicating to their brothers and sisters. So, and they, they, were, so they were saying it's just kind of a platform issue, not a race issue. But then other people are saying it's, you're just saying that's because he's black, right? Okay. And so it 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 hit square. I mean, because what was going on in the world definitely hit us squarely as a church. Now I wasn't here at that time. I mm -hmm. only heard the stories. Got it. Of kind of how that went on from both both parties, if you will. Um, I, I will say that as a church, we've made a commitment. Um, to having an open posture. And we, we define that as having a cruciformed posture. We, we extend our hands to the right as much as we do to the left. Mm. And so we, we, we're, we're a church for all people. Mm -hmm. um, and, um, 
and so um, uh, you know that 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 episode I think really informed my thinking because when I came in and I interviewed in, in 2014, the the minister that was here we we're talking and he's like, you know, race and politics really divides this group. They're amazing, but they get divided easily. And so we did a lot of teaching about reconciliation, about uh, unity, about the fact that we have to respect differences. Um, and, and I'll tell you, I, I, even with this upcoming election, I think it's perfectly fine for people to vote for whoever they want to vote for. But I think as Christians, we have to recognize that number one, we have to respect differences. You know, and, and, and number two, that this really is a debatable issue. It's, it's a choice, and that's, mm-hmm. that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're called to be ambassadors of Christ. Um, and so demonizing people or deifying people is not consistent with the, the pattern of Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the, the call. So I, I, I don't think anybody's going to save us other than Jesus. And <laughs> I, I don't think anyone's the antichrist. Though, they're, though, some people do things that are anti-Christian, you know, mm-hmm. um, but, 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 but I, my goal is to persuade them because from my vantage point, they're, they, they live 20 miles up the street their mission, like I have to be able to have them come to church. Right. Like my goal is to help every elected official to come to faith in Jesus. So it doesn't make any sense for me to take a posture that is antagonistic, uh, but it does make sense for me to take a posture that is clear, that is firm, that is authentically Christian. Um, okay. And, uh, let me let me and, just stop stop you right there and. and ask you a question. We've got mm-hmm. people in our own church that won't talk to other people in the church because of their political views. They just feel like I can't talk to that person. And the word demonizing, you know, the idea that, Hey, that viewpoint is evil. How can you be a Christian and be this party member, you know, Democrat or Republican? Tell mm-hmm. me, tell me how you deal with, with sticky situations like that. Yeah, it, it's tough. I, I mean, I, I was in one of them last week. I'll probably be in one of them this week. Um, I, I think you just got to have honest um, conversations and bring people back to the scriptures. Um, and and I, I, I think you have to be consistent in the messaging. You know, this is also a part of people are informed with negative um, thinking based on consistent messaging. Mm-hmm. And so that's why in the same way, I'm like, I'm going to, okay, point taken. I'm going to do consistent messaging on the other side. Like I'm going to stay. So if you were to track every sermon that we've done in the past two years, which I know you won't do, and please don't do that. (laughs) But but if you were, you would probably hear every, almost every sermon. We don't demonize. We don't deify. We don't demonize. We don't deify. We are church for all people. Cruciform posture. Oh, we love everybody. Remember that we've got to reach all of them. You know, we, we send the message consistently and then we address the issues directly. And one of the commitments that you know our, our core leadership group has made is that we're going to talk through the issues and, and deal with them and ensure that there are no gaps between us mm. and then that there are no gaps then between the family group leaders. Um, it, it's hard. And, it's, and right now, it's especially hard because you know on social media, we've got good friends, um, great disciples that are struggling in their faith, that are saying disparaging things on both sides. Right. And we're consistently trying to help them to see you cannot 
do that and be an ambassador of Christ, you know, because you don't speak for yourself anymore. Right. You, you speak for another country. So so you've got to figure what's the message that Jesus gave you. You give that message. If you want to have a private opinion, solid. That's great. But you've got to give the message that you've been given to give. Yeah. So that's that's where we are. I do want to share one quick thing, though, Rob. Sure. Just one of the most encouraging stories that was so weird for me. So uh, a good friend of mine, um, uh, family decided to become a part of Potomac Valley. Um, and this person was an elected official. And, um, and they posted something very disparaging uh, against another uh, recently elected official. So a Democrat posted something negative about a Republican. And so I got a phone call from another former elected official saying, what are you going to do about it? And I'm right. like, what am I going to do about it? I don't know. And uh, the, the post turned into a news article in our local news and just got really ugly hmm. and, um, and, 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 and involving, you know, racial, you know, um, uh, racially tinged language just to, I'm trying to sanitize right. it the best right. I right. can. Right. Um, but long story short, the person that, that made the post that was offensive called the person who was offended and apologized. Wow. And then, you know, I, I said, we have an opportunity here to really testify to God. Let's all get on a Zoom call. Hmm. So two Republican uh, officials, you know, a, a Democratic official and myself, the four of us got on a phone call and had a conversation. There were tears. There was forgiveness. There was reconciliation. Everybody you know, um, you know, was reconciled by the end of the conversation. I think there is a power to calling people to righteousness. And, um, and again, doesn't say anything other than the power of God, because the basis for our conversation were all of those people identified as people of faith. Only one of the people on the call, you know, identified as being a part of our congregation. But then another person this week reached out and said, hey, you know, I think we'd like to be a part of a small group. Um, so I, I think if the Christians could understand, and I, I would advocate this more than anything else, that after this election, we still have to win the world. So before the election, we've got to be the peacemakers that are there to help pick up the pieces. So if we change our posture, like this is actually an amazing harvest. Yeah. All these people are angry. They're going to all need to reconcile. I need to be somebody that can bring people together as opposed to someone who tears people apart. And I can have my strongly held views mm -hmm. while still being someone who reconciles people. And, and I personally have very strong views where I disagree with the Democratic Party and I disagree with the Republican Party. Mm. But for me, all the parties are souls that need to be saved. Mm. And so I try to keep it, keep it kind of within that frame. Um, and it, but it's, that to me, I, I honestly didn't know how that conversation was going to go. I, oh I didn't gosh. know if it was going to get ugly, but it didn't. People, people sometimes surprise you and they reconcile and they forgive, you know, and, um, and they could not be more stridently, you know, in their, in their position, but they're able to, to come together. Right. Well, I can't imagine just a, a more volatile and, uh, just a hotter flashpoint than where you're at right there, you know, within miles of the seat of power 
must be crazy. I I don't envy your your situation there, uh, but I, I, I I do think you you are the perfect person for it, uh, all things considered. Now let's let's kind of narrow the focus a little bit to the ICOC itself, our family of churches. The ICOC has prided itself on its racial diversity, going back to the Crossroads Campus Ministry Movement, the 60s, the inclusion of, of blacks and whites in worship together, where before you had a black church, you had white churches. They would have coffee every once in a while, but essentially there was no real communication. How do you view the state of racial diversity inside the ICOC these days? I think we're at a very tenuous point. I think in a lot of ways we're at, we're at a crossroads. Is my personal pardon, view. pardon the pun? Yeah, there you go. Yes, yes exactly. We are at, <laughs> we are back at the crossroads. We're there. We're back there. And I think it's a generational shift. I think a lot of the the leaders that champion that change are retiring. You know, sadly, some of them have, have gone on to be with the Lord. Um, and that's why I really commend what you're doing and have been doing for a, a long time. Um, I think we're at a, at, a, at a crossroads. Here's the thing. 96% of all black people go to all black churches and 99% of all white people go to all white churches. Wow. So we are either in the 1% or the 4%. We are a minority group within, uh, you know, American Christianity, if you will, in terms of the fact that we have a diverse congregation or have diverse congregations. Um, but one of the challenges is it's really hard to go from good to great. It just is because once you have diversity, you, you can easily overlook inequity. Mm-hmm. You can easily overlook um, the fact that we may have diversity in the congregation, but we don't have diversity in the leadership. Uh, or we may have diversity in the leadership in terms of racial diversity, but we don't have generational diversity or diversity of thinking. You know, um, and and to reach the world as it is, specifically to reach North America as it is, I think we need to make a pretty radical shift um, and and really recognize the real, I mean, like seismic changes that are happening. Um, uh, you know, those that are not in the faith community, they, they, you know, the the you know spiritual non-religious group in in our in our world and in our country uh, they're growing at astronomical rates um i have no contention with the muslim community okay so which which group are you referring to i'm I'm referring to not non those who don't identify the unchurched who don't identify as christian that group is growing and the ideas that they're purporting are growing Mm -hmm. um the Muslim community is growing in a significant way. And again, I don't have any issues with the Muslim community except their view on Jesus. This is my only contention. Mm-hmm. I love I love Muslim people. Love, I love Arabic food. You know, I love or, or all the food that represents all different Muslim people. But but what I believe about Jesus, this is our sticking point. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're growing, you know. And so uh, so I think in the ICOC in particular, we have to recognize that we've gone through a decade of decline. And I don't think anybody's been really owning that the way we need to own it. When you're at one or 2% growth, any church leader that's worth their salt can tell you that you're actually going backwards. Right. You, you don't, 
when you're at one or 2%, you're not really registering where people really are. Right. Um, and so if you, you know, kick the tires and, 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 you know, open the crack, the hood open, you're going to see there's a lot of issues there. So how do we make the shift and how does that relate to diversity? I think we should celebrate that we have diversity, but we shouldn't rest in our laurels about it. I think we should recognize that we really have to engage a robust conversation about equity and, you know, and regain, if you will, or maybe gain for the first time um, a, a sense of desperation about our need for God to lead us as it relates to issues of equity. Um, because the world dominates this conversation right. and it shouldn't because it doesn't have any answers. You, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I personally, I have no problem with peaceful protests. I've been on a peaceful protest. I, I absolutely find rioting and violence abhorrent and wrong. No question. But, but those protests are mostly led by people that don't have the faith that is necessary to reconcile the communities that they're calling for change in. So, so people will, it only serves to entrench their views and their tensions with each other. Who can bring people together? Christians can. Who has a diverse community that could welcome people? Many of our churches do. Who's sleeping on the watch right now? Most of our churches are, you know, and so so I think we've got to step up our game and not, it, it's not about racial tension. Racial tension is the, it's the fruit, but the root is, is sin and, and brokenness. And the solution is the church. It always has been. So, I, you know, I think my prayer for, for the ICOC in particular is that we not congratulate ourselves anymore about mm-hmm. our diversity. Mm-hmm. You know, we actually utilize it. Right. You know what I'm saying? It, it, it is our great, it, it is, it is a, such a testament. I, you know, like, as I said, we're in this super diverse area, right? Most churches in this area are not diverse. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so when I talk to a elected official or a community leader, and when I, when I, when I invite the chief of police in, I was blown away by his response. This, you know, chief Bernard, he's been, he served as our chief for, 30 years. He's been to every church. He knows everybody. He came to church with us. Um, we're honoring the police back in September, last September, a year ago. And Chief Bernard was like almost in tears. He's like, I've never seen a group this diverse. I've never seen this many young people. And Chief Bernard and I, from that day, we we're like, you know, thick as thieves. That's amazing. You know? and so, I, I mean, so I, I, I think we have that in every city where we have mm-hmm. a church of believers, I think we should lean into that. Right. You know, that's um, awesome. That's, that's my viewpoint. Right. And I love, I love the way you're thinking. One of the things that struck me is that in the sixties, there was a, there was a spiritual voice in the wilderness. There was a, a, a religious foundation upon which, um, the fight for civil rights was was resting upon. You had the yes. the Southern Baptist Convention. You know, you had, mm-hmm. of course, Martin Luther King Jr. And I've I've thought we need a spiritual voice, and, and that's kind of what I what I'm hearing you say is that okay? Yes, we've 
we've made great progress, granted, but let's take that strength and and use it to advance things farther and and be that voice. Yes, absolutely. You're abs- you you hit the nail on the head. I, I think so many of the solutions that are coming forward are solutions without God. Right. And 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 this is where humanity goes when it's in desperation. It just it makes these choices that are so destructive and we do need to be the spiritual leaders in our community. One of the things I think we struggle with Rob is this idea that we have of separation of church and state, non-involvement in civilian affairs. Um, and we shouldn't get involved in these issues because they're political issues. Right. But everything has a politic. My politic just happens to be that Jesus is Lord. You know, that, that's, that's what are the power relationships in my life? Jesus is Lord. That, that's my politics, you know? And so, and so I, I have to be involved in the community. And that's the thing that just struck me like squares day when I went to Indonesia, it's like, these guys are not divorced from their society. They mm-hmm. are engaged in it. Mm-hmm. They just choose not to engage in it in a non-Christian way. Right. They choose to engage in it as Christians. Yeah. And, um, and I, I, we really struggle, Rob, because we, we don't want to get involved in civilian affairs. And we shouldn't get involved in civilian affairs. We should get involved in spiritual affairs. Spiritual affairs involves being involved in the community. And, and that's what Jesus did. You know, he, he, he was there um, in the middle of it. One could argue, and I would argue, that the triumphant entry was itself a protest march. Mm. I mean, he was standing up against the system of the, of the temple, but it wasn't about politics. It was about people. And I, I think that's the part where I, I think we should not seed the big ideas and the big opportunities of the day mm-hmm. to the world. We should be willing to get involved in the mess without becoming like the world. Right. Uh, and I, I could be totally wrong about that. You can help me out with that. Well, I'm, I'm as, as, you're, as you're talking, I'm thinking about uh, the letter from Birmingham jail, you know, just talking really very similar theme, just like mm-hmm. trying to get in particular at that time, white Christians involved in, in the issues that we're facing at that time. Um, but it's, you know, it's a, probably a larger discussion than we've got time for here, but yeah. um I love the way you're thinking and I like your approach and I totally agree with you that there needs to be a spiritual voice that, that guides things towards some type of a reconciliation rather than just tearing things down and on, on both sides. How do you, well, how do you deal with the tension between races and ethnic backgrounds within the church? So you've got like 30 or 40% black, 30% white, and then 30% other Asian, different, different backgrounds, Hispanic, and your own experience as an African-American, I think this is where it's really tricky as a church leader today. Like, for instance, <clears throat> after the George Floyd shooting and, and in the wake of that, there was a, a drive like, hey, we got to address this as a church for sure. But me as a white leader trying to speak, it was tough. Like I, I formulated a letter trying to address it in a spiritual way. I turned it into my my core group of leaders, and, and it's a mixed group of uh African-Americans, we've got a couple Asians, you know, Hispanics. And basically they kicked it back to me and say, hey, you, that's not what I think. 
I mean, they all had their own opinions on it. It's like, uh oh, I'm in trouble here. We, yeah. it just, it just kind of brought up all of a sudden. My view is not everyone's view here, and you know, we eventually came to a, um, kind of a a way to move forward. But it's it's challenging when you're of one particular race because it's like, hey, I'm sure for you, hey, Will, you know, you got to stand stand on the side of African-Americans and, and what do you think about this? And, you know, how do you deal with that tension? Yeah, I will tell you, bro, it's been a struggle um, for, for sure. And I think race is one factor, generations another. Different generations communicate about issues in very different ways. Um, and uh, some people don't like talking about stuff. They're just like, Mm-mm, you, we, we just don't, it's church don't talk about it at church. Mm-hmm. Other people are like it's church. This is the only place I can talk about it. Right. You know, so, so there's, there's, there's that. Um, it's been a struggle. I think like you, I've really leaned on our core leadership group as a, a group that I can talk to so I can hear different voices. Um, I've had to embrace that with almost any choice that I make to address these issues, I am going to invariably not have agreement from everyone. And um, my goal is not to, you know, polarize a situation or demonize anything or, or vilify anyone, but just to address it. Um, you know, uh, it, it's been challenging, though. I mean, it, it really has. Um, Have you ever I, thought that my church may split over this issue? Oh, absolutely, because I know that our church almost did. So, I mean, so I've, I've, I've thought that that's possible. I've prayed that the work that we've done and the example that we've tried to set as a leadership would carry the day. And, and I'm, I'm personally confident that it will. Um, but I've, 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 I've worried. I mean, I've felt split in myself over mm-hmm. these issues. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have, I have a 17 year old young man who's African-American, who's a runner. And so when Ahmad Avery was killed, that, that hit me squarely. I'm, I'm 45 and George Floyd was 46. You know, I mean, um, so those things hit me. The thing that I've tried to do, um, is always to be a voice of, uh, reconciliation and engagement. Um, and also a voice that doesn't represent myself. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not here to represent the African-American view, though I can tell you my view as an African-American, mm-hmm. um, or, or the white view or the Latino view my call is to be ambassador of Christ. How do I bring all of God's children together Mm. and do it in a way that speaks with authenticity and integrity and, um, and the necessary alarm, you know, when, when needed, um, that's a struggle, you know, Mm. I mean, uh, as we've addressed the issues, I mean, I've, I've had, you know, some of my white brothers and sisters feel like, man, the way that you said that just didn't register right, you know, and uh, I've had some of my black brothers and sisters that have felt like you just, you weren't hard enough on that issue, or Mm -hmm. you didn't say that quite right. So you're right. I mean, I know the young people in particular have, have been the most vocal, which I'm really proud of them for telling me what they really think. Um, But, uh, but yeah, again, I'm not here to represent, I'm not a politician. So I'm, I, so I, you know, so I'm not here to represent the view of the, the demo. Right. You know, I, I'm here to represent Jesus. Right. You know, I'm an ambassador. 
know, theocracy. It's so. a very uncomfortable situation because, you know, I've always taken pride. You know, we used to lead an international ministry in Tokyo, Japan, which is people from all nations. So I've never, ever thought, oh, I'm racist or anything like that. And yet I get kickback from my own kids when I say something in a certain way. And it's like, they'll, they'll correct me. And I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> you know, I just, I've got the... I've got the police right here in my own in my own home, and it's it's an uncomfortable time, definitely, where it's like everyone's having to look at attitudes and views. I, I don't want to take up all your time, Hill. This well, this has been an amazing time. But what one thing would help leaders? Let's imagine you're leading a small church in, let's say, I don't know, let's let's say Nebraska or, or somewhere like that. And and how do you navigate this current time? Like any practicals what what takeaways just to to try to keep your church together um be godly at the same time any thoughts yeah remember who you are remember that you're a disciple of jesus um engage in the local community there's such a void of leadership in the local community get engaged and show the christians how you care about people um everyone's not gonna agree about these issues and that's okay but i think it's important as a church leader that you really model a commitment to loving all people in practical terms um owning responsibility for you know if you say something the wrong way apologize reconcile but i i think more than anything else i'd say engage in the local community don't underestimate the power of how many people that are not yet christians are watching what you do And those people a year from now, two years from now, three years from now, 10 years from now, if God gives us that time, I believe will come to faith in Jesus because they saw how you loved people in practical terms. Pray for the community in private. If you have opportunities, pray for the community in public. Serve the community in private. If you have opportunities, serve it in the public square. Um, I think I would encourage leaders in Nebraska, in Idaho, in, um, you know, in Illinois, where I'm from, um, or, you know, for, where, whether you find yourself on either coast or in the South, wherever you are, get engaged. Mm-hmm. We, we, we could not be more needed than at this time right. to be visible and engaged. Mm-hmm. And I believe that the greatest harvest is in front of us. Wow, that's awesome. I know you're getting your doctorate right now. I could, you know, just by listening to your comments, I go, this guy's got a book. He's, he's got a book bubbling up. Are you working on a book right now? Uh, are you, you got something going? You know, I've been working on something for a little while. I just, mm-hmm. I need to put stuff down on paper mm-hmm. in, 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 in a much more intentional way. Um, I mean, boy, I, I could just, you definitely need to put those thoughts on paper. There's there's a lot of great thinking and, and stuff that could very, very help. Just you're from your background, your family background, and all your experiences. Um, if you can put it together in writing, be awesome. Just I, I would be the first one to buy your book. Thanks, bro. That's so encouraging. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what advice would you give a person who wanted to make this life count for God. You, you are making a difference right now and continue to do so. And I, I look forward to watching your career over the next 20 years or so. What would you advise for someone who's young? They go, man, I want to do that. I want to do something like that where I'm doing something significant for God. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, for, for someone who's young trying to make sense of where, where to go, you know, we're living in history right now. I mean, so, um, and one of the temptations when you're living in transformative times is to be spread all over the place. Uh, you know, I think uh, my encouragement would be to really get anchored in a, in a relationship and in a community where you can really get the support that you need, where you can really grow in your faith, you can get practical discipling on your life. Take the time, you know, Jesus didn't start till he was 30 for a reason, uh-huh. you know, like take the time to figure out your faith, to walk with God in silence, to have people that are in your life that can help you. Um, and think about the long game, you know, like if you're in your 20s, dream of where you'll be in, at 40 and 50. If you're in your 30s, the same way. I, I would think about the long game. And I think the, the thing that I've found to be the most significant is being alone with God and having people that really care about you, where you have a high degree of trust, who can really help you to, to work through the deep issues in your heart. Uh, you know, definitely be engaged in the community, but there's a danger when you're young and doing lots of busy work um, and being everywhere, but right. being nowhere. Right. So I would, I'd get rooted, get really rooted, you know, and, um, and, you know, and learn from people who have walked some of that road, you know, discipling is the thing that I think is, is one of the, it's often missed mm-hmm. the value of just having people in your life. Absolutely. Great advice. Great advice. Well, with this, this is, I, I just got to ask this question. Okay. This is totally off topic. Okay. Not in the script or anything like that, but uh, just was watching the news. Um, Steve Nash just got hired as the head coach for the Brooklyn Nets. Were you aware of that? Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of that. That's amazing, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Um, is it Stephen A. Brown, the, the sports commentator? Is that his name? Stephen? I believe so. Anyway, he, he made a comment and he said, Hey, Steve Nash is amazing, super gifted, awesome guy, has no coaching talent, has, I mean, no coaching experience. You know, you've got people like Tyron Lue and other black coaches that are still assisting coaches. This is an example of white privilege. Mm -hmm. Now, I just thought, I I just got to ask you that, and this does not have to be included in, in the recording, but I just... I just want to hear what, what you think about that, because that's, that's a real hot topic, especially, you know, for white people, it's, it's like, oh my gosh. And then it's just, it's like, okay, this really brings to, to the fore in a, in a real live situation. Mm-hmm. Okay. What, what are your thoughts on this on example yeah. like that? So white privilege is definitely a, a hot topic. You're absolutely right. And, and in our church, there are people that have very, very strong views as you can imagine, on both sides of the conversation about white privilege. I, my understanding of white privilege is that it doesn't mean for one second that someone hasn't worked hard or hasn't accomplished um, what they've accomplished through hard work or that they were born with a silver spoon in their mouth. It just means that, that the color of their skin is just one thing that has not held them back, you know, and that the, the, the privilege in America of being white is that, is that, if you're if you're white, that's just one less thing that holds you back. Mm-hmm. So if you have a, a black kid and a white kid, you know that do the exact same job at the exact same way. You know the 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 advantage that the white kid would have is that you know your color is not going to be a deterrent to what you're able to do. Um, there are an incredible amount of people 
that are black and Latino and Asian that have done incredible things and are very successful. And the same thing with, with, with white people. Um, I, I look at this, you know, like most people do from the lens of my own family. So I'm the oldest of my mom's children and my brother who's white is the youngest. Um, there have been challenges that I've had that he's not had. I don't begrudge him for that. I'm happy that he doesn't have those challenges. I, I wouldn't want him to have the nervousness that I felt when the, the blue lights were on, even though I'm friends with the chief of police. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't want him to have the, the barriers that I've had to overcome. Mm -hmm. I'm actually happy that he doesn't, right. you know, um, but it, it would be difficult for me if he could not understand the fact that I go through those challenges. And if right. I told him, Hey, it was a rough day because I had to deal with this. If he was like, no, that's just in your mind. It's just your feelings. You know, that, that'll be difficult on a relational level. And so I think that the key to addressing issues like white privilege is honest conversations and empathy. Mm. Um, is, is, was that choice a product of white privilege? I don't entirely know. It, um, I, I don't. I mean, I, I don't know that that's entirely knowable for me the people that were in the middle of making that choice, they, they're the ones that I think have to ask themselves those questions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, are there black coaches that get, you know, overlooked um, and, and white coaches that are favored? Sure, that happens. I mean, it's, it's the world. People, people uh, can be drawn to people that look like them or that they identify with their story right. in, in ways that, that are unconscious and they can be drawn in ways that are conscious. Right. Um, uh, you know, and, and so I, I am a, a person who I do believe that white privilege is real um, because I believe that many privileges are real. You know, I mean, I, I as a man, there, there are things that I, I don't struggle with that, that my wife has had to struggle with. And when she tells me I've learned by making the bad choice, not to dismiss it like oh no you're just feeling that. like no it's a real thing for you you know <laughs> you know i but I've, I've i've messed up and so um you know but 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 i i don't think that privilege is the biggest uh obstacle that we have i i think the biggest obstacle that we have is empathy hmm. because if someone says that they feel like they weren't treated equally then I think hear them, mm. you know, and understand why, and don't be too quick to dismiss them. Right. Um, and and also, I have, from having lots of conversations, um, fortunately or unfortunately, with with white brothers and sisters, I understand how folks could feel like their life experience and hard work has been diminished by the fact that the color of their skin, something they did not do. You know, like, like, and, and they feel vilified or disrespected, or what do you mean? You, I think even in that conversation, you're beginning to understand, right. <laughs> like, like, you know, how, how someone who's non-white would feel about, so, so the outrage that, that is felt, that, that's the thing you want to hold on to right there. Yeah. That's it. That's what people feel like. Mm -hmm. I've done everything the right way, but this. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the, the, the tension point around privilege, I think, gives an opportunity for relationship and for dialogue. Right. Um, I, 
again, you know, I, I of recently I've not used the term white privilege much. And honestly, I didn't use it. I, I never used it in the past. Um, but uh, just because I know that it can be such a uh, attention point for right, people. Right. But, but I definitely, Rob, I definitely believe it, it is real. But I don't think it's the only privilege that experience that's, that exists. And so, um, and I don't know that the answer is um, found in even some of the language that we're using. I think the answer is found in empathy, hmm. in respect. Um, and, um, you know, and, and for what it's worth, I mean, I have had experiences within our family of churches where I have been overlooked or treated disrespectfully. And when, when I gave it time enough to work through the issues with the people, it was on the basis of race. So I, I've experienced that. That's, that was that's, one of my questions I was going to add on. Have you ever experienced that before where you yeah. got passed over for a job or a position because of that? Absolutely. I, I mean, and absolutely, yes, within our family of churches, which, which you know, which is a, a, a truth that I think I've had to, to own. And I've had the conversations with the folks that have said to me, point blank, Will, there's no way that a Black person could lead a racially diverse congregation. And I'm like, that's wrong, you know, or I, you know, I can't picture you as a church leader because you're Black. I'm, my picture of a church leader is white. Um, and, and again, you can go a lot of different places with that. And I've gone a lot of different places with that. It's not always been good. And like, you know, in terms of my heart, but what I, what I know to be true is that goodness is not the product of how someone looks. It's the product of what someone does. So there, there are good and bad people from, with all skin colors. Um, and truthfully, all people are no, no one's good except God alone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so I, that, that's not, that's not the, the deal. Um, but how you overcome that, I think it's through having real conversations, forgiveness, reconciliation, empathy, but also through example, you know, I mean, I, I, I think it's important that as a white leader, as a black leader, as an Asian leader, Latino leader, that we treat all people with fairness and with respect right. as much as we can. Right. And where we fall short, look, I'm, I'm the first to tell you, I, I mess up. Um, so, uh, you know, and so that's, that's, uh, it's, it's been challenging though, bro. I'll be yeah. honest with you. I, I've not had a more difficult time in the ministry than the past six months. Um, but, but I've also not had a more transformative time. Mm. So I'm, I'm very, I'm very hopeful. Mm. Um, about the future. Do you ever because, fear for your family or for, or for yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. And I live in a really safe neighborhood, right. but, but I, I mean, when, when everything went down, I mean, you know, we're in Virginia, so we, like Arizona, we got lots of guns, you know, <laughs> and, uh, you know we, we all got lots of guns and, and I don't have a problem with guns. I, I don't mm -hmm. own a gun, but I, 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 my grandfather was a cop, right. so I don't have a problem with guns. But my first response when it all happened is I, I went to Gander and I was like, let me go look at some guns, man. Right, you know, like right. I got to keep my family safe, you know. Um, but the truth is, that's not the that's not the solution. Uh, and again, there are some people that do feel the need to, to have have guns to keep their home safe. And I respect that that choice. But 
Um, but I've definitely felt fear for my family. And, you know, I, I, especially, I especially because you, you are a, a public figure, you're in front of crowds, you're speaking up, you, you're saying things that may offend either, either side of the argument, black or yeah. white. And so, yeah, bro, no, it's, it's funny. We had a, a, a I, I pray, uh, you know, prior to the pandemic, uh, you know, we would pray every, every month or sometimes two times a month for the local uh, council meetings. And so I went to go pray like I normally pray. And that day, you know, we're having a second amendment um, conversation. So the hall was filled. I mean, and, and the everywhere that literally was hundreds of people. And, um, and you're right, bro. I mean, I had, I had a guy that was right up on me and I could feel what he had on him. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know? And I was like, all right, you know, like this is, this is real. <laughs> but my job today, as it is every day, is I'm here to pray, you yeah. know. And, um, and, um, and again, I, you know, I, I do believe that God is in control. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but but I, I struggle, like everybody else does, you know, with wanting my family to be safe and um, feeling concerned about what's going on. But I, I am as you are resolute in my belief that the solution is Jesus. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much, Will, for, for the time. And, and I, you know, just as we talk, there's so many other things and I'm sure for listeners are like, Oh, ask him about this, ask him about that. And I know that you're doing so many videos and, and you have your own podcast. I think it's called greater everyday podcast. And so um, people can listen to you there, but thank you for making the time and, and for just the great example in the ministry that you're doing. I, that's first and foremost, what I was interested in is finding out what in the world are you doing there that's helping that church that was struggling and now it's growing in a, uh, a situation that's, you know, facing uh, directly right, right in the storm of all the cultural events that are happening across the country, right there in the, the fringes of the DC area. So thank you for your time. Brother, thank you. Thank you for your example and for what you're doing. And I'm grateful to be on the podcast and Thank you. And if you're enjoying this podcast, I just want to say thank you so much for listening. It's great to have you here listening from around the world, uh, whether you're in India today or in Japan or in Korea or any, any country. I'd like to ask you, please subscribe to the program. Let your friends and family know. You can also email me with feedback or questions. I'd love to hear from you. Rob at TucsonChurchOfChrist.org. My goal is to inspire you to make this life count live a no regrets life, and multiply disciples, leaders, and churches. Have a great day and make this life count.